Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Cloistered inside air-conditioned rooms, huddling to find just the right words, the negotiators at the COP talks in Egypt have been at a remove from the reality the world faces. This week, one of our own producers reaches back to her homeland in the Caribbean, to lay out all that's at stake for the region and for her own family, family that only just survived a hurricane's fury. Fighting City Hall may take on a new meaning in Edmonton, where a new kind of budget has council counting carbon emissions. It may prompt new battles that could pit new roads against new electric buses. But if Edmonton really wants to see what could lie ahead, look to Oslo in Norway. Its budget is translated into nearly silent construction sites and cemeteries that serve as green spaces for the living as well as the dead. Away from all the politics, two artists, one a musician, the other a designer, share their special ways of standing up to climate change, creating through their passionate work, messages for the planet. Welcome to What on Earth, I'm Laura Lynch. Hurricane season is coming to an end, but not without leaving a wave of destruction in its wake. Caribbean nations battled the likes of Fiona, Ian, and more, and came out the other side with significant loss and damage. It makes real the urgent calls from the global south for developed countries like Canada to acknowledge their role in causing such trauma by paying recompense. Our associate producer Daniel Piper has been watching this unfold from a special perspective one that's intimately connected to the Caribbean. Danielle joins me now. Hi. Hi, Laura. So uh, this story is actually not just any other story for you. It's personal. Why? Yeah, so I moved to Canada from Jamaica in 2009. But a lot of my family still lives in the Caribbean. And it's all been a little bit surreal. Over the last few weeks in our story meetings, we've been talking a lot about COP. This high-level meeting of world leaders arguing about what to do about climate change. Meanwhile, I've been watching some of my family experience some of the worst effects of climate change. What a juxtaposition. I mean, I know that, that you've been going through it because I have, I have seen you um, talking to family and trying to figure out what was going on. And I'm really sorry to hear about that. But let's just talk more about the impacts in general and then on your family in particular. Yeah, so Caribbean countries are on the front lines of the climate crisis. Since 1950, more than 300 natural hazards have occurred in the Caribbean. That includes storms, hurricanes, floods, and drought. As the intensity of these disasters increases, so do the impacts to people, to buildings, and to animals. Now, as you said, Laura, it's personal. My family is safe, but they've had some very close calls. My brother, Wayne Piper, he lives in Belize. He and his family lived through Hurricane Lisa just this month. It was 
only a Category 1 hurricane, not a lot of rain, but the storm surge was intense. It was about four to five feet where they were. Um, and it was scary for him and his family, especially my five-year-old nephew. He was good at first. When the roof went, we explained to him, okay, a part of the roof has gone, but the rest of the roof is there. We're okay. We're just going to go downstairs. Then now when the storm surge came in and now water started coming in the house downstairs, and now we had to go back upstairs, he started to get frightened. He can't see where we are and it's getting dark and there's rain coming from the sky in some rooms and there's water coming in through the doors in other rooms. That's when he had a breakdown. What did he say or did he just fall like uh, tears? No, he was he said he was saying he doesn't want to lose his mommy and daddy. He wants his mommy and daddy. Oh, what's his name? Charles. We call him Charlie. Oh, poor Charles. I feel so badly for him. It sounds awful. And I saw you on the other end of things trying to get in touch with your family. You were so concerned about them. I mean, concerned is an understatement. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I always say that in my mind is here in Canada, but my heart is somewhere else. I get that. Uh, I, you've witnessed, learned about, read about hurricanes for a long time now. Is there one that stands out to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Probably 2019's Hurricane Dorian. Um, seeing images of people in the Bahamas scrambling into boats from the attics or roofs, hearing horror stories of people being swept away into the ocean, it was unbelievable. I bet. That, that I'm wondering also at the same time, just how frequently is this happening to Caribbean countries? Multiple times per year. So the average Atlantic hurricane season has 14 storms, of which seven are likely to become hurricanes, and three of those are likely to become major hurricanes of category three or higher. The last two years have been above normal, with the number of storms and hurricanes surpassing this average. Luckily, this year hasn't been as rough in terms of frequency, but it's not just the frequency we should worry about, but the intensity. Warmer waters fuel these storms. According to the U.S. National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration's Climate Prediction Center, climate change is likely making these cyclones stronger. This means stronger wind, heavier rainfall, and likely more flooding. That all sounds so bad. What does it mean, though, for the people of the Caribbean? In places like the Caribbean, climate and economy are interconnected. So when they're hit with a storm, or worse, a hurricane, people really feel it. I spoke to climate scientist Michael Taylor, who is a professor at the University of West Indies in Jamaica. The thing about the small islands and, for example, those within the Caribbean, is that climate change is so intimately linked with daily survival and daily existence quality of life and standard of living. When climate begins to become unfamiliar in a setting where we are really dependent on the familiarity of climate, climate impacts every aspect of a small island life. That phrase, dependent on the familiarity of the climate, what does he mean by that? So extreme weather affects every single sector of Caribbean economy, especially agriculture. After these disasters, the cost is significant. According to the International Monetary Fund, on average, the damage from these disasters, when measured as a ratio to GDP, 
was six times higher for Caribbean countries than for larger ones. That's for the time period between 1950 and 2018. And so with this kind of damage to contend with, people can't always depend on agriculture for economic prosperity. But in the kind of climate change era we are in, agriculture can never deliver on that because the era we are in is one of extremes. Climate change is almost a permanent setback. Finally, when you put that in the context of what is projected for climate change now for the Caribbean region, where even at 1.5 degrees, the changes will be so significant. If we can't deal with the current unfamiliar, when the climate becomes unprecedented in the future, you can see it is a huge threat for the survivability of of small islands. Okay, I think I get it. With all the things that that we think of as as things that we take for granted from the Caribbean islands, all of the fruits and the sugar, everything we get from there, if the climate's changing and wrecking crops, that's a knock-on for the farmers, of course, but for everybody else. And it it does, as he says, threatens the entire lives of those nations. So then those nations are gone, have gone off to COP with ideas about what they wanted. And what did they ask for at COP in Egypt? Yeah, it's kind of different for each country. Some want oil and gas companies to give a share of their recent big profits to these countries in the global south. And, you know, that's what we heard from Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados, on last week's show. And, you know, others like Jamaica really want more money to help adapt to the changing climate. And that was Jamaica's focus at COP27. I spoke to Jamaica's Minister of Economic Growth and Job Creation, Matthew Samita, before he headed to Egypt about why it's important to both listen to and assist Caribbean nations. We're already seeing the impacts of the warming that has taken place. For us, going to COP is critically important for us to ensure that the things that can be done that slow the rate of warming are done, so that the things that can be done to ensure that the money is available for countries like Jamaica to adapt to the changes that have already come is critical for us. Financially recovering from climate disasters leaves little to no money to do anything else to prevent more harm the next time. It's a continual cycle of never catching up and never catching a break. Sunita says the extra money would allow Caribbean countries to invest in their future. We won't be able to meet the capital expenditure that will allow us to sufficiently change out our national fleet to EVs allow us to sufficiently change out our energy production at the rate we need to to meet all our mitigation targets without outside assistance. Now, for us, the assistance we're interested in is larger grants. We actually need genuine investment into our survival. And you can hear him using that key word, survival. That is what it is about for him. There is, as has, has been talked about for a long time, this $100 billion fund Um, that nations like Canada are supposed to be supplying to nations like Jamaica. Yes. And that pledge is to help mitigate and adapt to the effects of climate change. But as we all know, the developed world hasn't exactly lived up to its commitment. Not yet anyway. Not yet. (laughs) So Jamaica is one of the many countries that could potentially benefit from that promise. So we've been talking about these very high-level political and financial discussions in Egypt. But really, at the end of the day, what we're also talking about and what is important to you and what we're trying to figure out is how are Caribbean people actually keeping hope alive? Yeah. So in my experience, Caribbean people 
always have a way of finding the silver lining in everything they do. Um, listen to this story my brother told after Hurricane Lisa dissipated. The morning after the storm, when we were tidying up our homes and our yards, we went over to a neighbor and we're all talking about our experience. And one neighbor said, I lost all of my coconut trees. And he went and brought all the coconuts that came down to the front. And we started chopping open and everybody started drinking coconuts and having a good time right there while reminiscing about the storm. That's a very Caribbean thing. You, tur you turn a loss into a good time. And that's what we do. We bounce back. I love that story. And I can see you smiling, listening to it again. And I, I trust that, that uh, Charles was there having a good time recovering from it as well. Is he doing okay? He's doing fine. He's uh, at grandma's house now and he's having the time of his life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are the next steps for your brother and your family as they do bounce back from this? Yeah, so they've met with several contractors. They've received all the quotes. They're going to meet with insurance companies. And as politicians try to hammer down some help... For my brother and his community, the most immediate solutions are really on a human and local level. It's really why you say, be human, think about your fellow neighbor. Everybody is going through something. And one thing that we have found going through our stuff while we try and clean out the house, is we have so much more things than we need. And you can donate them. There are people who may have use to this, use for those things because people have lost everything. So it's really just the assistance of their fellow men and their own strength and resilience that can get them through it. Hearing him say that was a bit hard to hear, I'm not going to lie. Resilience is admirable. People all over the world are persevering through extreme weather and extreme circumstances. The question is, how are we going to work together to fix that? Obviously a really big question, but I appreciate you giving us that snapshot of, of what it's like for, for people and especially your family uh, in the Caribbean, Danielle. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. The sounds you're hearing are from the song Perils of Heavy Rainfall by Alberta-based Sufi singer-songwriter and composer Shumaila Hamani. It combines ancient poetry with sounds gathered in the real world. The song is from her debut album, Manat, which she describes as a prayer for the world as it suffers from the increasing effects of climate change. What on Earth producer Rachel Sanders brings us that story. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit in March 2020, Shumaila Hamani was visiting Pakistan. I was born and raised in Pakistan, and uh, I still hold a Pakistani citizenship. So I have a very strong connection. My family, my father is there, and my extended family is also in Pakistan. With travel restricted, she was suddenly unable to come home. Before her trip, Hamani had recorded a song with two Edmonton musicians. The words are based on a poem about the joys of rainfall by the 18th century Sufi mystic Shah Abdul Latif Bitai. It's about, you know, the monsoon comes and it alleviated all my suffering. And my beloved, he thought of me. We will be meeting soon. So it's a lot of anticipation for the weather and the joys that it will bring. Rainfall in the Thar Desert in Sindh 
it brings a lot of joys and brings a lot of bounties because the desert becomes all green. It's spring, the entire landscape completely changes and there are weddings that take place. So it's also considered a season for love to meet. I was mixing that album and it was July and monsoons were happening around us. So I wanted to record the sounds of the rainfall and sounds of children playing and singing songs. They were like totally excited hearing the thunderstorms because you know rainfall is something very joyful. It comes after hot scorching summer months of May and June. So it's something that's very celebrated within South Asia. But what I experienced in 2020 in my hometown, Karachi, was something spectacularly different. Record-breaking amounts of rain drenched Karachi in the summer of 2020, the most since records began in 1931. Thousands of families got displaced. It was one of the worst floods that happened in the city's history. All the news were flooded with how much people were feeling uh, the havocs of rainfall. People who were living on their day-to-day -day income could not commute from one part of the city to another. And people who commuted via motorbikes or rickshaws, they were falling out of their rickshaws and motorbikes. So there was just so much water on the roads. And I felt a little dishonest talking about joys and beauties of rainfall because that's what probably rainfall was like back in the 18th century when the Sufi poet wrote about it. So I, I thought to myself that, you know, Sufi poets, these are poets of the people. They communicate, they express the sufferings of the people and the cultures and traditions of the people. And if Shah Abdul Latif were alive today, would he not have brought into consideration all that is happening around us, the other side of monsoon, the other side of rainfall, which is not happy at all. And so I felt compelled to respond to Sufi poetry in a way that hasn't been presented before. Amani came home to Canada in May of 2022, right around the time more heavy flooding began in Pakistan. The glaciers had started melting in early May back in the north, and bridges were collapsing at the time. I became more kind of galvanized to create something based on the present floods. When we hear about, oh, 33 million people have been displaced and a third of country is underwater, we are still hearing statistics about what is happening at the ground level, at the micro level, how people are experiencing it when their entire homes have been taken away. What is left? You know, the children are going through so much trauma and these are people at socioeconomic margins. It's devastating. So much has been destroyed and so much will have to be rebuilt. Amani says she sees climate change affecting the cultural significance of monsoon. Despite climate change, it will always be celebrated because monsoon comes after scorching heat in South Asia. But of course, the rainfall, the devastation that floods have caused makes you look at monsoon in a bittersweet way. 
because of the climate change, it's creating more havoc than joy for people. Earlier this fall, Himani spoke at Canada's first Music Climate Summit, put on by Music Declares Emergency in Toronto. There is a big role that musicians and music community can play to serve the environment at this stage. Some of the work has started, but there's a lot more that can be done. Music and arts can do amazing things at multiple levels. Arts can play a major role in making people aware of these inequities and empowering them to contribute their voice to climate justice. What I want Canadians to understand is that climate change does not impact all of us in the same way and equally. In this era of climate change, we are all in it together. But in order to talk about climate justice, we need to keep in mind that our actions are impacting and making things even more difficult for those who are at the socioeconomic margins at society. We need to contribute our voice to climate justice and we need to take responsibility because if we don't do it, we are actually contributing to the disaster that's already on its way and we will be engulfed with it. It's not going to leave anyone alone. It's there's the scale of disaster that is happening is epochal and um, we need to act now. You can find more of Shamila Hamani's music on her website at shamilahamani.com. And I'll spell that for you. That is S-H-U-M-A-I-L-A-H-E-M-A-N-I.com. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Ever wanted to fight City Hall? It's not unusual to want to shake your fist at the choices being made by local government that affects so many aspects of daily life. Parking, road repair, building permits, and on and on. At the end of the day, it's all about how city council spends your money. Now Edmonton's city government is taking a bold new step. It's considering a carbon budget alongside the old-fashioned dollars and cents one. I'm Ashley Salvador, city councillor at the city of Edmonton in Ward Métis. Ashley Salvador champions a carbon budget as the key to actually cutting emissions instead of just hoping to cut them. Every line item in the city budget will be measured for the emissions it expends or cuts. And as of right now, the proposed carbon budget for Edmonton aims to reach net zero by 2050. So it can only emit 176 million tons of carbon to reach that goal. But as of today, it will use all of that up by 2037. Salvador admits the city could be in a bit of trouble. 
we are actually not on track to meet our targets. We are uh, anticipated to surpass our 2050 carbon budget uh, in 2037. So that means without some significant changes, uh, we're in a very problematic position. So there are two obvious ways to stay within the carbon budget. One is to cut projects that send out even more emissions. Well, it indicates that things need to change. Being able to see various projects, and I'll I'll use an example of a road widening, there are carbon impacts associated with that. So what the carbon budget allows us to say and see is, well, maybe we shouldn't necessarily be investing in infrastructure that is going to have such a negative impact on our carbon emissions. Uh, So in that sense, it provides us with the information we need to course correct. Uh, So we have been on a path that has created a very high carbon city. In order to achieve our goals of of getting to a low carbon city, uh, it, it allows us to change course. The other way, of course, is to invest in new projects, equipment and technology that will actually cut emissions, such as retrofitting buildings or expanding public transportation. Now that will be up for discussion at City Hall in the coming weeks. And Salvador knows there will be some tough choices that may have residents, well, yeah, shaking their fists. For example, um, you know, there are a lot of, of line items that the previous council had, had approved related to uh, large rec centers, for example, or uh, highway expansions. And um, there's, there's some lines around uh, enhancing our zoo. And while all of those things are, are important, I would say that we really have to think critically as to whether those are the investments that need to be made now when it's quite obvious that climate is absent from the budget. There's also the equally critical question of how to raise the money to spend on making Edmonton greener and cleaner. Salvador says the city doesn't have the authority to impose something like road tolls, but she hopes other levels of government will kick in some funds. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. All right. Well, Edmonton is just at the start of carbon budgeting, as we heard. Oslo, Norway, has been at it for half a dozen years. And listen to this. It plans to reduce emissions 95% from their 2009 levels by the end of this decade. It's led to some pretty remarkable changes in the way people live in the city. Heidi Sorensen is the head of Oslo's climate agency. Hello. Hello. Nice talking to you. First, I wonder if you can actually just tell me a little bit about Oslo. It's the capital of Norway, and we have approximately 700,000 people living there. So it's a quite dense city, and I think there are many cities that could be reminded of the same size as Oslo all around the world. (laughs) So if we can find good good solutions to climate issue, I think many other cities could adopt them. So why did the city decide to adopt a climate budget? I think many of the politicians in Oslo were tired of uh, not reaching climate goals. And uh, I think that is um, was the main reason why they wanted to do something new. The climate budget was a way of getting from 
ambitious climate targets actually into concrete action and results. It uh, is a part of the ordinary annual budget. It's owned by the wise mayor of finance and it presents the expected emissions reductions from the adopted climate measures. And it clearly says what has to be done by whom, when and where relevant at what budgetary cost. And uh, three times a year, every entity has to report on how they are doing with their climate measure. So it's far more strict than just saying we've got this target to do this. Yes, we are following up three times a year. And in my experience, I think the, the division of responsibility and the fragmentation of the responsibility has been one of the main challenging in achieving goals. You know, we are coordinating a lot of different departments and agencies. They all have their own targets and interests and often unrelated to climate. climate. And it's very challenging to coordinate that and uh, because climate measures also often cross sectoral boundaries. So the climate budget was our solution to that. I know a lot of people, and, uh, sorry, I, I, just, I know a lot of people think that those kinds of things you're talking about, like governance and structures, that people kind of go, oh, that's really boring. But that's what makes this work. As you said, the, the authority for all of this is centered in the, in the vice mayor of finance. So that yes. makes sure it happens. I'd rather that vice mayor has a lot of power. Yes, and he is putting forward the annual budget to the city council. And the climate budget is always chapter two in the annual budget. So that is extremely important because when the measure is adopted, uh, it has to be implemented. It has to actually happen down on the ground. You have to could see it. And we're going to talk about that some more. In fact, I just want to play some tape from a construction site in Oslo that you've used when you give talks about the budget. Let's just have a listen to this. Now, you ask people if they can hear the noise, and the only noise that I really hear there is the sound of children playing. There's no sounds of drilling and digging, and I think you're pretty proud of that. Tell me how that's been accomplished. That has been accomplished actually through procurement. The reason why there is no noise is because all the machineries are electric, and there are no noise from electric machineries. What you hear was the kindergarten. There were actually two kindergartens next, uh, close to, very close to this um, construction site. We award companies who can provide zero emission construction services. And that is important for contractors because it creates predictability and demand for zero emission solutions. When we uh, first uh, made the first uh, climate budget, there were no electrical excavators available. Now there are electrical excavators in more than 30 construction sites in the city of Oslo. So using procurement can make innovation happen, an innovation that can actually create technologies that we need to reach our climate goals. That is amazing that you've you've, you've created the market for things like electric-powered excavators. I'm I'm wondering what else Oslo is doing that that you credit to the carbon budget beyond 
electric construction sites and procurement. What else are you doing? What we have invested in this uh, spring is a carbon capture and storage facility at our incineration plant. And that is actually the first carbon capture and storage facility at an incineration plant worldwide. That is 17% of the total of the Oslo city's uh, climate emissions. So, so it's a big thing. But the biggest emission source in Oslo is mobility. Uh, we had a goal in the climate budget that the public transport should come zero emission by 2028. But sometimes things move faster than we can anticipate. So we will actually be able to reach that goal next year, in 2023. All the trams and of course the metro are electric, all the ferries are electric, and last next year all the buses will be electric as well. So then we will have a zero emission public transport in the city. That that is a great achievement. Now, tell me about what the city has done in the cemeteries. I understand every citizen (laughs) in Norway is entitled to a free grave, but you've done something with this. Yes, uh, because they were run by fossil fuel machineries as well. And uh, no, they have uh, changed all that. So they are now run by electrical machineries. I understand that the cemeteries have become sort of um, more green, emission-free, but there's also wildlife roaming through them. Now they become almost like parks as well. Yes, and they have also done things for biodiversity, for instance, nice things for bees and uh, flowers that is being planted. There are programs, so there should be flowers that will be interesting and important for, for all kind of pollinators. This is amazing. You're thinking about uh, what I think about just about everything from life through to death. So those are (laughs) some of the ways that Oslo spends money with the climate in mind. But I'm wondering how it raises the money to pay for these things. Yes, uh, I think many knows that Norway is an oil and gas rich nation. But what is actually been paying for the investment in public transport, which has been crucial, is that toll ring and uh, you have to the toll ring you mean the the ring around the city okay and you pay the ring around yes and when you enter that with a fossil car you have to pay quite a lot Uh, if you enter with a electrical car you pay far less so this is this has of course not been easy and but uh, there are agreement to continue and by 2024 uh, the a fee will increase by 40%. If uh, you see all of the new cars sold in 2022, 82% of new passenger cars in Oslo are electric and 36% of new vans. And so far in 2022, 30% even of new heavy vehicles have been zero emission or biogas. So that's good, but uh, still is a way to go. It is interesting, though. I mean, you 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 um, you got ahead of me because I, I was going to ask you about the fact that Norway is so well known for its oil and gas industry. I mean, it's yeah. similar similar to Canada in that sense. Fossil fuels have yes. gen- generated much of the wealth there. Um, mm-hmm. Even though you have the toll, if people are buying electric cars and if there there is money to do the procurement, that's at least indirectly due to the money that's being generated through oil mm-hmm. and gas. And I wonder, do you see any problem with using wealth from that sector? to help try to transform Oslo into a climate champion? 
I don't think there is any problem in using revenue from the oil sector to develop the climate solutions. And if we succeed on electrifying the whole mobility sector, there will be no market for oil and gas. So we are in a period of transition. The, the city of Oslo, we don't have any oil revenue as such, but of course, Norway has big oil revenue. But uh, I think on the uh, turning the question around is like countries like Norway and Canada, who, who has become extremely rich because of oil and gas for very many years, have a special responsibility to develop solutions that can help us to combat climate change. Okay. I'm I'm wondering how, with everything that you've done, how much have emissions dropped so far? So far, they have dropped by one third. We implemented measures, so they have dropped by 62%. We still have a way to go. I was wondering at, at some point, though, whether you need to get another level of government, perhaps national government, to, to do things to help you reach that target. Yes, I think uh, climate leadership is about uh, working to, together with your neighbors, working together with your neighbor communities, but also, of course, on regional level and at state level. And there are no way that we will be able to reach the last emission reductions without a good cooperation with the national state. So I think we, to some extent, are dependent on them. But it's not like them helping us or us helping them because they are the same emissions. So if we succeed, they succeed. So I think there is good reason for that we should have be able to have a good cooperation with the national authorities as well. Now, you already mentioned a special responsibility that the cities in Canada would have, but I'm wondering what other advice you would give to cities in Canada who are looking to adopt their own climate budgets. Do it and start with the things you can measure. And uh, if you can't measure everything, start with the things you actually are able to have control of. So, and put it in the very center of decision-making. And be bold, be ambitious. And uh, I think if you're able to adopt uh, measures and states, what has to be done by whom, when, and at what cost, I think you have come a long way. And then, uh, again, uh, to follow up on everything you do is extremely important. It's perhaps a governance system sounds boring, but it's absolutely necessary if you're going to reach our climate targets. I, I can just hear people in Canada sort of going, what, a toll to get into the city if I have a gas car? I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? I mean, you face that opposition yourself. So what, yes, what would you say? What, what would you say back? We I just have to say we introduced it in 1989. And um, what we used to say is that if you're going to lower our emission, we need to have more people to choose public transport and to make a very effective and very good, pleasant public transport. We need that revenue. That has been uh, the case uh, ever since 1989. Now, 90% of the revenue from the toll ring is being used to build a better, even better public transport system. And I think people love it because it's so efficient and we can have a lot 
cleaner city. Actually, a columnist wrote last year that the city smells so nice now. <laughs> and that's because there are basically, uh, the level of air pollution is way down. And you can notice. All right, we'll leave it there. Heidi Sorensen, thank you so much. Thank you. So much about that I found interesting because of the, the way to compare things between Oslo and Edmonton or other parts of Canada in the, in the sense that both countries um, have a lot of wealth generated by oil and gas and both cities are trying to make a dent uh, in their emissions. But there's also things that aren't the same at all. Um, smaller populations, higher tax rates in, in Norway and the Nordic states that may make things easier, different government structures. But when you hear about the kinds of things that are being done in Oslo, it really does just pique your interest, especially things like electric ferries that are already running all the time or what they are doing in the cemeteries. And, and it is to most people's enjoyment in the city. It's lessons to think about uh, for Edmonton and for the rest of the country. All right, it's not Christmas yet, I know, but if you pop into the mall this month, you will likely hear Christmas music on the overhead speakers, and there will be sparkly window displays full of colorful clothing. So much of the holiday season, including Black Friday, is about luring people into buying more and more stuff, including all that seasonal so-called must-have clothing. According to the World Bank, the fashion industry accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions. Alexa Lizotte is a Métis artist and sustainable clothing maker who's fighting this trend. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel stopped by her home studio in Burnaby, British Columbia for a visit. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for coming. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. So there's still some boxes. Alexa Lizotte welcomes me into her apartment, which she just moved into, and introduces herself. I'm a Métis artist and educator, and I come from the Métis community of North Vermilion Settlement across the river from Fort Vermilion in northern Alberta on my father's side, and then I also have European ancestry on my mother's side. In her kitchen, there's a pot simmering on the stove. So I cut like this. On a November day, you might guess it would contain soup. I would just pull apart the pull it apart like this so that I can really reach the center. So then I have kind of this pile of leaves of cabbage, and then it goes right into the water. But cabbage and water are the only ingredients for now. So we have our pot here um, with some red cabbage boiling, and the the water is already turning really purple, and it's only been boiling for about 30 minutes. It's that rich purple color that interests her. She'll use it to dye cotton fabric and ribbon to make a skirt. And we'll get back to that later. Lizotte's business is called Desert Métis Creations. She sells beadwork on her website and on her Etsy shop. And she also makes ribbon skirts. So this, this is a post-contact artwork because the cotton and the materials did come from European trading. It was kind of leftover fabrics that were taken and created into these skirts, these leftover ribbons and leftover cotton pieces. And that is part of the story of how ribbon skirts came about and how it kind of became part of different indigenous cultures across Turtle Island. 
Desert Métis is a nod to her Métis heritage, but also to her upbringing in Nevada, where her mom is from. And growing up there was kind of difficult because my dad didn't really want to bring us back to his home community because of his experiences there. You know, as much as we have a lot of beautiful things going on in our communities, we also have a lot of harm going on right now. Um, and and so he didn't really want to bring his, his children around that. I think it was really critical to my identity to understand where I came from. And I didn't have that. And and so I felt really lost for a long time. I felt like I didn't really belong to anywhere. When I was living in Nevada, you know, people would ask me what my ethnicity was and where I was from. And it was always hard for me to answer. Lizotte says these experiences led her to go to university in Vancouver at UBC. And that was kind of where my, my uh, identity reconnection began. You know, UBC is on Musqueam land, and so we had a lot of Musqueam people come. And I looked up to a lot of them, and, and I had some elders in my life that really helped me solidify my identity. She got involved with the Urban Native Youth Association, where she learned how to bead. And it's so crazy because when I was first learning how to bead, I was so frustrated and it was so difficult uh, to pick up. Now she sells beaded earrings, among other pieces. Lizotte leads me to her home studio, nestled neatly in her bedroom. So I have my special corner here. So I've I've tried to make it as as uh, special as possible. So I put my drum up on my wall uh, to remind me to have strength. A sewing machine sits on a small table. Behind it, a shelf, home to her beads, hides, ribbons, fabrics, and finished pieces. She pulls out a ribbon skirt. So this was my first skirt I ever made, which is crazy. And this one's really important to me because it's red. My grandmother, who I never really got to know, my Métis grandmother, um, she she always wore red. That's the story of her. Not just red, she tells me, but Buttertown red. Buttertown, what North Vermilion Settlement is also called. Lizotte visited when she was 14 years old, meeting some of her relatives for the first time. It's To me, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's just trees and grass and hills and flatland. Located on the Peace River, the community was part of a historical trading route. In 2018, an ice jam on the Peace River caused flooding in the community. And another flood happened just two years later. There was a flood in 2020 um, in April, I believe. And so it flooded both Fort Vermilion and North Vermilion settlements, so both the north and south side of the river. The science is clear. Climate change makes floods more likely to happen. But climate change wasn't on Lazat's mind just yet. This flood that happened in 2020 actually took 150 homes out. And so it was really devastating to the community because there's only about 800 people in Fort Vermilion. So 150 is a huge number. And so I ended up going to visit for Thanksgiving in 2020, which would have been in October. And I just remember seeing all these families put up in these trailers in this this piece of land that was so it was just mud like it was just all mud and it was these small trailers so close to each other and just rows of them 
So it was it was really devastating to see the families and how they were set up there and that it was October and the flood happened in April and they were still there in October. And it was devastating to see um, one of my aunties, her piece of land that she had in North Vermilion Settlement, the devastation that, that her piece of land had. Seeing all of this firsthand, Lizotte went back just six weeks later to help. She got a job with Alberta Health Services as a flood recovery worker, and another with the Métis Nation of Alberta as a community navigator. Um, kind of from the social and psychological perspective. And so that was what I did for over a year. In the spring of 2022, in the Northwest Territories, just across the border from northern Alberta, another flood hit. This spring, there was another flood in the nearby Dene community to my home community. And and all of these things just kind of started adding up and solidifying. And I started realizing that this is, you know, this is now the story of the North. Like, you have to be scared of flooding and and people's lives are at stake. Northern Canada has already warmed about three times the rate of the rest of the world. With the stakes continuing to get higher, climate action has become central to Lizotte in running her business. And talking to people about sustainable fashion is part of what action means to her. And so all of this just started adding up, and this was kind of what led to the presentation that I was able to give with Métis Nation of Alberta on, on climate initiatives and, and ways that we can change, and kind of this project that I have around fabrics and how clothing is really important in, in climate initiatives, our choices in clothing. What was the story behind you reevaluating the materials you were using and, and trying to uh, turn more to, to cotton and to um, dyeing using like uh, natural natural processes. Um, it's it's funny actually. I I was approached by a customer who said she wanted a skirt, but she wanted it to be a hundred percent compostable. And so she asked me that, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll try to come up with something. And so I started doing some research. And, and I started learning about these fabrics, and I learned about the importance of fabrics like cotton and linen. She used unbleached cotton for the skirt. But then there was another inspiration when it came to choosing a color. I had heard this story that um, Indigenous women and Métis women used to dye porcupine quills with berry juice. You know, I just heard this tiny, tiny story, but it stuck with me. It was a big piece of you know, my project today and my knowledge because I took that tiny story I had and it molded into me then furthering and doing research and seeing what plants and fruits and vegetables can make different colors. That purple dye using cabbage when I walked through the door, that's just one example. Lizotte also uses turmeric for yellow, beets for a pinkish purple. So if I can talk about this skirt and what I'm doing, then I just hope that it opens up people's minds to their choices in fashion. And it's also about history too, because when I'm doing all these things, you know, it's helping me connect to my Métis heritage and reminding me that, you know, we used to do this, we used to dye with berry juice um, and always use, you know, natural materials. So that's, that's told through this cotton skirt that I'm making, which is being dyed with fruits and vegetables. And she saves any leftover materials from her work to create something new. That's even a story that I have of my my grandma making everything from scratch. You know, everything was always constantly constantly used. Hardly anything was thrown away. Even with this piece here, 
This is kind of just a awkward long piece of hide I have from kind of a scrap scrap piece of hide that's only about an inch thick. So this is saved and each each piece will be used to create some sort of beadwork. Even with the beads too, there's this thing in the beading community called bead soup. She collects all of the extra beads. And you just make a piece with these kind of random colors. What are some of those choices that you're now making for yourself within this bigger fashion system that we're in? When I, when I look at a piece of clothing, I look at it like, how long is this going to last me? I, I didn't buy too much from the fast fashion brands that you can buy online that are shipped from across across the world, but I did sometimes. So now that is my number one rule. I will not buy fabrics or clothing from, from those sorts of stores because a lot of the times those fabrics are polyester. They're not made very well, so a lot of times you'll wear it a few times and then you don't want it anymore. Polyester, a synthetic material that's hard to break down, sometimes made from fossil fuels. So looking for those cottons, linens, hemp blends, and avoiding polyester. You know, so there's the pressure to follow trends, that's one thing, but then there's cost. Yes. Which is a limitation for a lot totally. of people. So that that's definitely something to be mindful and that's a difficult part of this conversation because a lot of the times, you know, when we want to buy locally made, you know, healthy materials, it's going to be much more. So my alternative to this is probably thrifting is probably the most important thing to me because this way we can look for we can look for clothing that is healthier materials that is going to be at a lower cost. You know, it's November. We're heading into, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm personally already getting like advertisements for pre-Black Friday yeah. sales. And, and I'm wondering what do you make of, of all of those pressures and, and those discounts and, right. and stuff like that? I was just at a store the other day and, and they had their Black Friday sales signs up and they were playing Christmas music. And, you know, as someone who studied psychology and sociology too, I'm like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> You know, trying to get people in that quote-unquote Christmas mood, which means buying gifts. Meanwhile, as Lizotte's purple dye is still cooking away on the stove, we take a look at the results of some of her other slow and careful work. So I do have some fabrics that I can show you. Um, And so what we're looking at here is a yellow cotton and kind of a light purple cotton. Remember the turmeric and the beets? Lizotte points out how the dye took better in some spots than others. This one, you can kind of see some white spots. and so that's It's a journey that's still unfolding for Lizotte as she continues to dye, sew, and beat. And most importantly, to talk about not just what she's doing, but the bigger picture. You know, people ask me about my skirts and, you know, is the colors going to wash out and all these, you know, logistic questions. But for me, this skirt making is more about the story of the skirt and a reminder that fabrics matter and our choices in fashion matter. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker. Producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson is our engineer, Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.